Thank you, Pastor Dave. You can open your Bibles to chapter or Colossians chapter 3, and we will continue our trek through this chapter, which I think, I really do believe it is a pivotal chapter in the walk that we have in Christ. Let's start off by reading the chapter as we've done every day. Today is our last day in Colossians. Tomorrow we're going to be in Galatians 5, and I almost think that we could probably spend, I think we could have spent the entire week just in this chapter. There's so much to talk about. Uh, But I want to get to Galatians because I think there's something very helpful there for us also. So let's start in chapter 3. We'll read the first 17 verses like we have been as our practice, and then we'll dive into some prayer in the lesson. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off your old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace. We pray now for your blessing on our time in the word. Lord, it's been a wonderful week. We're so thankful to be at camp. We pray now, Lord, that our minds, our hearts, our inner people would be renewed as we dwell in your scriptures yet another time. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I just want to say I've had a really great week at camp. It's been really fun. I did the bumper boats yesterday with Evan. 
and uh, how many of you have done the bumper boats with your kid? Those are not the biggest boats. I am not the smallest person, even though my kid is. So it was, it was a fun time, though. It was good. We had a lot of fun. We were smashing into people. He's screaming his head off laughing. Um, but there's a lot of fun things about camp, but one neat thing about camp has been uh, seeing familiar uh, apparel around. Uh, I don't know if I've said this yet, and maybe you won't even believe this after the other day, but I am an Iowa Hawkeye fan. Are there any Iowa Hawkeye fans? Yeah, yeah. This is really fun. See, I like this. So I like the Hawkeyes, but I married a Michigan Wolverine. Whoa, whoa. Oh, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Okay, how many Wolverines are there here? (laughs) My wife, whoo, (laughs) and like two other people. This is, I like this. When I go to Michigan to visit family, it's, you know, who are the Hawkeyes? But here, it's like, this is great. So I I used to jokingly say that football season was always the hardest time of year for our marriage because we would play, the, the Hawkeyes would play the Wolverines, and you'd know, we'd get a little tense. Um, But there is something that unites me and my wife during football season. The Ohio State Buckeyes. (laughs) See, this is where the Wolverines and the Hawkeyes, they all like this. (laughs) We got the, is there any Buckeyes other than Larry here? Oh, there are. Wow. Okay. See, I didn't, and forgive me, uh, Pastor Larry, I don't want to be offensive, but I thought there was nothing good to come out of Ohio. Okay. (laughs) I just thought nothing good could come out of there. But I was talking with Pastor Larry the other day, and he, he had had an experience, and I want to share it with you. Uh, remember, I didn't, I didn't get to get the mic earlier when Pastor Cottner was handing out candy, so I'm going to help, help that cause right here. But he said that he, he, he knew an Ohio State fan and a Michigan Wolverine fan, and they were buddies, but they jabbed each other all the time. And they both died and went to heaven. And the Michigan Wolverine got to his mansion, and it was much larger than he was expecting. It was a really great mansion, fa- fabulous mansion. And uh, he, he got done looking at it, and he looked off in the distance, and he could see the biggest mansion he had ever seen in his entire life. It was gigantic, ginormous, and all around it were Ohio State Buckeye flags. And he just, he was a little bit disappointed. And when he was talking to God later, he said, you know, Lord, I don't understand. Why is his mansion so much bigger than the one you gave me? What did I do? And the Lord said, that's not his mansion. That's mine. Now, I'm a Hawkeye, <laughs> but it did my soul good to hear that. <laughs> so I had to immediately go and tell my wife, <laughs> who's now frowning at me. <laughs> now, why are we talking about this? Uh, I can tell, I mean, I have this, this thing in common when I see you wearing a Hawkeye shirt. I see it, and I'm like, hey, go Hawks, and we start talking about it. Uh, but w- anytime, this is my habit, because I'm a rude person, when I see a Wolverine jersey, I usually go and say, hey, uh, excuse me, sir, you have a dirt on your shirt, right? And they're like, where, where? And I'm like, it's, it's like shaped like this. <laughs> yeah, total, total people I've never met before. So the, the, we're in Michigan like three weeks ago visiting your family. I'm in Meyer. If you're from Michigan, you're going to freak out about Meyer. It's the greatest store. It's like a Target. Uh, anyways, but I was in Meyer, and here comes a Michigan jersey, and my reflex was to be like, uh, Sir, and then I stopped myself because I'm in his home turf. <laughs> How rude would that be for some random guy? You're in Michigan. so. But, but what I want to bring up is that the clothes we wear actually communicate something about us. Like, I wear a Hawkeye shirt because I'm a fan of the Hawkeyes. 
I like the Hawkeyes. I root for them. I'm happy to be known for it. And then an Ohio State Buckeye fan, even in Iowa, there's like two more of them, still wears the Ohio State Buckeye stuff. A Wolverine, they're proud of it. They're going to wear it no matter where they're at. Today, Paul gives us a command to put on some virtues. And the reason we're talking about clothing is the, the way he says this is the same way you would tell someone in that culture to put on a shirt. It, the idea is like you clothe yourself. So he could have said, instead of saying put on then as God's chosen ones, we could have said clothe yourselves as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then listing off the virtues. So what we're going to learn today is that if we want to live over here in this new life, we need to have the right clothes on. We need to be wearing the right uniform, as it were. So first of all, this whole passage is about cultivating virtues. We're going to talk about like cultivating, let's say growing things. And the way you can cultivate the virtues, first of all, is by growing in virtue. And here, he's going to say, you need to clothe yourself. You need to begin to look more and more. Like This is not like in one moment you're going to be perfectly virtuous, but you need to cultivate this by continuing to keep trying to put back on the right set of clothing. If you think about a police officer... If I were to go out and buy a police officer uniform, and then I were to buy the belt with the holster and the, all that stuff and the handcuffs, and the hat and the shiny shoes, and even the bulletproof vest to go into the slightly oversized shirt to fit it, if I were to do all of that, would it make me a police officer? Uh, no, it would make me a felon, I think. So, you, you, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to do that, right? But if I'm a police officer and I'm not wearing my uniform, am I still a police officer? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have the position of being a police officer. That doesn't change even if I'm out of my uniform. I'm just an off-duty police officer. You've seen those uh, situations where an off-duty officer is in the right place at the right time in his plain clothes, and he's able to save the day. Uh, I saw a similar situation with an, uh, like a Marine who wasn't on duty at the time. A guy went to hold up a, like a convenience store, and he kind of cuts in front of this I mean, if I'm a criminal, I'm not going to do this. This guy is huge. He's jeans and a t-shirt, but the guy's like big. And he's like, looks up at him and he pulls a knife and turns back. I mean, the guy is like four foot five and he holds the knife up and he's saying something. The security camera shows the Marine guy who doesn't look like a Marine, kind of backs up like this. And as soon as the guy looks forward, the thief, you see the Marine kind of, and he just in one quick move grabs around his neck, grabs the knife, and then just falls back and smashes the guy. To I mean, he falls back on the guy, and then he just sits there holding the guy the whole time. What? You know, criminals are not always the brightest people, okay? <laughs> At least the ones that get caught. But if I were to put on a military outfit or a police officer's outfit and stand behind that guy, could I do that to him? Probably not. Remember, I have a seminary physique, okay? This is not the, my, my, my area, but... Not wearing the clothing doesn't mean the police officer doesn't become a police officer anymore. And sadly, sometimes as believers, it's like we stop wearing the, the virtues even though we're still a believer and we start putting on those dirty clothes that we used to wear. The ones that we're supposed to put to death, get rid of, and burn up. We're not that person anymore. We're in the new life. So we should let our clothing, metaphorical, match our new life. Now, when you wear clothing... It's, this is going to be um, a little bit technical. I'm trying to be very not technical this week, but this one's technical, okay? 
when you wear clothing, other people can see it. <laughs> Did you get that? When you wear clothing, people can see what you're wearing. In fact, it's something that identifies you. So when Paul says here, put on or clothe yourselves, he's saying take those virtues and become characterized by them. But I think there's the idea, too, that if you're wearing it, it's going to be visible to other people. So we're going to look at a host of virtues right now. And the, uh, the thought behind this is that do we need to try to be, be, be growing in these to the point where other people see them, where other people would say, oh, yeah, I know that person. No, they're really, they're really kind. Or if someone said, hey, is that person uh, a meek individual? And they thought about, oh, yeah, they're, they're pretty meek. I think they're meek. You know, it doesn't have to be like the first word they say about you, but eventually you would hope that it's the first word they say when they say your name. So let's walk through these virtues. We'll try to go <coughs> briefly through them. Uh, first of all, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now I'm going to pause again. Before he gives us a command for something we need to implement, he reminds us because you're chosen by God, you're in the new life. You're holy. You're loved by God. Because of that, put these things on. It's never a, these things are right, so do the right thing. It, it, that's true. He's saying these things are the right way to live because of who you are now. So be who you are. So he's put on compassion. I think we know what compassion is, uh, but it's like a pity or a tenderness you have. And it's expressed towards someone usually who is suffering or miserable. And the idea here is it's like, uh, you know when like you feel really strongly for someone going through something to where you kind of feel it in your gut? Like you just feel so bad for that person? That's the idea behind this word. Having compassion on someone else. <clears throat> I haven't been through too many health issues in my life. Some of you have. Some of you have long and persistent health problems. I had a, a little one that took about six months Maybe two years ago. It was nothing. Uh, my wife's had a couple. But no, nothing that rises to the level of like cancer or surgeries or anything like that. But I remember before this, seeing people on Facebook would say, you know, my kid has this, keep praying. And they're just for a long time dealing with this. Or, man, I have this issue and I've been going to the doctor and I don't know, please pray. And in my mind I would say, oh man, that's bad. I should pray for them. And I cared and I loved them. But for me, that was about as deep as it went. But when I went through my own difficulty and I felt the pain and the, the uncertainty and even the disappointment that I'm not healthy right now and I have to deal with this, and the Lord walks you through that, now when I see other people go through it, it's like there's something different. Like, oh man, that has got to be so hard. The command here, the, 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 the exhortation here is to have that kind of a heart toward other people. Now, how do you do that? I mean, I can't go out and get myself cancer and get myself a surgery and get myself in a car accident just so I can, I mean, I could do the car accident probably. I've done that actually. Um, but but I, is that how we're supposed to do it? Like if I, only if I have experience can I really empathize? On one level, sort of, but on another level, I looking back realized that when I would see those people going through it, I, I was minimally loving toward them. I was minimally concerned about them. But really, I was concerned, and then I had to get back to my life. And there's an element of compassion that's unselfish. As we go through, all of these virtues are outward. 
All of these virtues deal with other people. In fact, I would say that I don't know which of these, if any, could be accomplished or embodied if no other human beings existed but the person trying to embody them. Can you be compassionate if no one around you is existing? Compassion is like an others-centered virtue. Patience, an others-centered virtue. Meekness, an others-centered virtue. Forgiveness, very obviously an others-centered virtue. Now, humility, that one is how I view myself. So that one I think you could, in a room, alone, no other people, you could exercise that. But when it comes to compassion, I think the reason I couldn't be that compassionate was not necessarily that I hadn't experienced those things. I think it was I was a little more selfish than I realized. I was a little more self-interested. But the Lord allowed me to go through a, a minimum, a really minimal thing. Oh, and it taught me stuff that I didn't even see about myself. Now, there's a couple lessons here. If you've gone through it, whatever it is, you have an insight into some pain and difficulty that other believers don't. You actually, like Corinthians says, that God comforts us so we can feel happy. Wait, that's not what it says. It says God comforts us so that we can comfort other people. If you've gone through it and the Lord has been a hope for you and you've, you've come through it or you're going through it and you've learned to rely on the Lord, it's not just so you can rely on God. It's so that you can go out and help other people to get through those situations trusting in the Lord. It's so that you can now be even more compassionate than you were before. These are other-centered virtues. So if you've gone through something difficult, I'm not saying you should be excited and happy and, man, I loved going through surgery and I loved getting in a car accident. It was so fun. That's not what James is saying. It's saying when you face those trials, you should have joy because it's working in your faith to make you more trusting in God. Here, right here, compassion. I think compassion is connected to all of that. So we need to be compassionate. And part of that is being unselfish. And part of that is the final virtue we'll talk about. So we'll save that for just a moment. The next one says you need to put on compassion. Be clothed by this. Be known by this. When people see you, they should see compassion. Put on kindness. Kindness is the quality of being helpful or beneficial. It's, I think we know what it is to be kind. It's not rude. It's not harsh. It's, it's kind of a form of gentleness in action. Are you kind? What's the last, like, think of an interaction where you weren't kind. Is there something you could have done differently? Uh, I had a fitness tracker. Now I have a little Fitbit tracker, but I had another little fitness tracker. It was another brand, and it broke. And uh, so I emailed the company, and they gave me a new one, and that one broke. And I emailed the company, and I can't remember if I got two from the, I think I got a second one, maybe from the company, but the final one, when it really fell apart, is it, it quit working, and this time I was really careful to send them a nice email, a long, clear email, but as short as possible, explaining all the problems, because what does a help person do? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you done this? So I said, I've done this, I've done that. I was trying to help this person to not have to go through meaningless uh, jibber-jabber with me. They email me back and say, thank you, it'll be 24 hours before we get back to you. And then the person says, hey, finally gets back to me and says, I'm sorry that you're going through this. Could you please describe your problem for me? I mean, it's like the Hulk. I was just getting angry. And so I was so ticked. 
that I just let it out. I mean, the, the, remember the wrath we talked about yesterday? Like, put away wrath and malice? I, like, put it on. <laughs> I'm like, it's going to come through this keyboard right now. And I'm, like, typing it out. I mean, long, I mean, I think I said something like, are you even reading these? I spent all this time, I mean, I'm blowing up on this person. Send! And it was no sooner than the send had happened that the Lord smote my conscience in love and said, do you realize how you interacted with that person? You are a professor at a Bible college, let alone a believer, but you're supposed to be the believer who teaches believers. Like, that matters. I mean, I'm not any different. Pastors know this. You're, you're a human being. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, my email says .faith.edu. what am I going to do? I mean, it's probably someone in India, but still, (laughs) come on. So I'm like totally, my pride is just taking a beating. And I, but I, but the thing I, I know what I have to do and it's going to be awkward and embarrassing. And I'm going to go through some shame. I got to write a letter. I mean, I got to email quick. And so I thought about it. I prayed, confessed, tried to repent as much as I can in that moment. And in the weirdest way to someone I've never met who knows if they're a Christian said, you know, I sent this email and uh, I'm a Christian and those are sinful actions and words that I used. I mean, I don't know who this person is. They're probably going to think this is weird. I'm a cult person. I don't know. But, but I know this is what I have to communicate to write this, uh, uh, correct this. I am writing it, but correct it. And uh, before I could get it sent, I had a manager email me <laughs> That means in the, in the, like, help center, someone put the flag up and said, this needs to get escalated to a manager. I got escalated to a manager to deal with. I did. Oh. So she's, she actually says, we're going to send you a brand new top-of-the-line fitness track. You're going to model up. And so now I feel even worse because I'm sinning. I'm wrathful. I'm rude. Now, I could communicate all those true things without being harsh and angry and sinful about it. But I just let out my venom. And, and in the end, I get this new fitness tracker that costs double what I paid for the first one. Before, like I got that email before I could send my apology. So now I feel even worse because I'm going to send this apology and she's going to think, oh, you got what you want, now you're trying to be nice. But I had to do it. I had to do it. And it was embarrassing. But what was happening is I wasn't being kind at all to that poor worker. Anyone who's been in retail knows, I, I worked retail for a long time, and you just get venom sometimes from customers. And it's not that lady's fault. She probably had 100 emails to go through. And she's just trying to get through as many as she can before a break. And what, ha- what do I do? I let off on her. I just let all my wrath go to that person. I went over here, and I picked up my old dirty shirt, and I put it on, and I started living out of it. And I am not this person anymore, even if I act like it. I'm new. I should have been over here. Has that happened to you? Is there, is there times, and it doesn't have to be a long, angry email. Maybe it's just a quick, snarky word to someone. Uh, maybe you're just really ticked at how annoying this person is, and you just pop off real quick verbally at them. It's not kind. And you know what? When you respond in kindness and the world expected anger, that is like open door to share the gospel. I mean, I've had that happen where someone blows up at me and I respond, Holy Spirit, praise the Lord, and then you can see their look, like, why are you, like, why are you tearing me, like, tearing me up right now? 
Man, if, when you put these clothes on as a believer, people see it. It's like putting on my Hawkeye jersey. Everyone knows I'm a fan. It's like putting on a dirty jersey that says Ohio State. They know you're a fan. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. But, but that's the idea is that by, by living this way, it's not like we're faking it until we make it. It's that this is who we are now, and we're actually living to match our lifestyle. When an officer puts on his uniform, it's okay. It's the right thing. If I put the uniform on, I'm faking it, and I'm probably a felon. Today, put on these virtues, because it's, if you're a believer, this is who you are now. Now, if you're not a believer, and you're trying to act this way, it's never going to work. You're like the person putting on the officer uniform and going and pulling people over. You don't have a badge or a badge number. You might think you're the officer, but the only person you're fooling is yourself. All right, back to the list. Okay, so put on compassion, kindness, humility. Man, when I responded to that lady, I was not being humble. Uh, I was not, you know, having a right estimation of myself. If I were in her situation, how would I respond? What would I want in that situation? Why do I need to exert my authority? Why am I the most important thing in my universe right then? Because I'm prideful. I'm full of myself. Humility is not thinking I'm the trashiest, worst person ever, but it's having an accurate understanding of who I am. And I would say this is who I am, but for the grace of God, I'm on this side, and I would be on that side. It's God's grace that saved me. It's not because I'm good. It's not because I deserve it. It's because Christ saw me knew that I deserve to be damned to hell for eternity and said, I'm going to go down and die for him. And he did that for you too. When you keep that in front of you, it's hard to be prideful. It's hard to be arrogant. It promotes humility. Meekness. <clears throat> Put on meekness. Uh, you've probably heard this definition before, but meekness is like strength under control. I think that's good. I think the, the idea of not being impressed with yourself, okay, it would be like someone who could order everyone around, but still goes up and, and does their own work without making other people do things. So, like, think of the Apostle Paul. When he was in Corinth, he purposely didn't work, or he purposely didn't take offerings from the church. He worked a second job so that there could be nothing they could say, like he was just here to make money, he was just here to make a quick denarii, you know, sharing the gospel. He, he had a right. He had something that was due him, but he said, you know what, I'm going to forego that, even though it's my right, and I'm going to serve you by working. That's meekness. That's like a picture of meekness. It's like when the company CEO could tell everyone what to do, and he, at the end of the day, sweeps up the entryway that's near his office. He didn't have to do that, but he's also not letting his position go to his head. Now, if you're a CEO and you don't do that, that's fine. That's okay. But a picture of meekness is when maybe you go out and do that, and you go out and serve, even though you're the king. So you have meekness. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of asserting what's due to you. Patience. Now, when we think of patience, we have a couple of definitions. This is not the kind of patience where I can wait a really long time to get something. So like you're waiting for your Christmas present, you're like, I'm fine. I can wait in peace and tranquility. That's not what, this is not communicating this. 
This is saying someone is being a total jerk to you and you're bearing up under it and you're not responding in kind. Or someone is wronging you and has wronged you and you're not letting yourself become bitter but you're being patient with them, trying to love them for the Lord. That's the kind of patience he's talking about here. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine how that would transform our relationships if that was the only thing we did. We were always patient when we were wronged. Imagine how my email would have sounded differently to that company if I had been patient. He says, this is, this is interesting here, he says, patience, and then in verse 13 he says, bearing with one another. The idea that you're like dealing with each other and you're not letting whatever's going on fracture your relationship. If anyone has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. So the final virtue he lists here in this first section is forgiveness. It's the willing to, it's being willing to forgive when you have been wronged. What is the motivation for a Christian forgiving another person? Again, it is, it is not, that's the right thing to do, you should do the right thing. It's true, it is the right thing to do, and you should do the right thing. Why do we forgive? Because I'm only in the new life because God forgave me. What have I done to God? Sorry, that's not like, what have I done to God? <laughs> I'm thinking of all the things I've done to God, and he's forgiven me for not just half of them, not just three-quarters of them, not just 99% of them. He's forgiven me for every single one. Think in your own life for just a moment. Don't, don't uh, dwell to the point of shame, or, but, but like remember, what are some of the things that you have done that God has forgiven you of? I mean, the really bonehead things you've done, really hurtful things you've done, and know this with certainty, God has forgiven you for every single one of them. Every single one of them. There is not one thing you have done that God has not forgiven you for, if you're a believer. So how does it look when I go out and someone does something really tiny and really petty to me and I won't forgive them? There's a parable about that in the Bible. You should read it sometime. The servant who doesn't forgive his fellow servant when his master forgave him billions of dollars that he owed. That's how Christians look when they won't forgive each other. And that's the, f the final virtue he, he gives here, and he gives the reason for it. It's because of what God has done for us. You must forgive the way God has forgiven you. So that's the first command. Now, I want to stop here because we'll hit this next one next, but think of all these virtues. Almost all of them require other human beings to be around. And they either require those other human beings to be in the midst of hurting or in the midst of sinning against you. The concept here is that the way I relate to people ought to be characterized by these things. So it's not enough for me to say, you know what? I need to be a more compassionate person. You need to say, I need to be a more compassionate person too. And then you have to know a name. It's not enough to say, I need to be a kinder person you have to say, I need to be a kinder person, too, and then you have to have a name. I need to uh, be a more forgiving person, yes, but is there a name of someone you need to forgive? 
all of these virtues require other human beings. And so they're not abstract. They're not just ideals that we're thinking about. They are, but if you're going to do them, there has to be another human in the mix. Or in the mix. You have to have someone else you're thinking of. Now imagine this for just a moment. Just let's dream for a moment. We got, I don't know how many people we got here. Looks like a couple hundred. I'm not good at math to begin with, and counting, I'm, yeah, that's right. See, we, yes. We, we, you know, I could use, I have like 20 fingers and toes, I could get that far, okay? But let's say there's a couple hundred people here. What if, like, what do you think would change in this entire group dynamic if 10 people had the ability to perfectly implement and embody these six virtues? Just ponder for a moment what that would be like at this, this camp this week. Hmm. What if it was 30? 30 people. I mean, I probably bumped into at least one of, you know, th- let's say it's a third. I mean, I've probably bumped into at least a third of you. I mean, I'm talking to all of you, but, you know, running around here or there on the bumper boats or whatever. Imagine if it was 30%, okay? You have a very good chance of running into one of these people. What would that change this week? I mean, I think we're, I think it's been a pretty nice week. I haven't, no one's come up to me and screamed at me. I, I think it's been pretty good. But imagine if we, if, if 30% of us perfectly embodied these. Now take that all the way up to 100%. What would that change? What if that was the case in our churches? Can you imagine our churches if we perfectly embodied all these, what would change? What would be different? I mean, I just have this idyllic picture in my mind of people getting along and wronging and forgiving and just truly loving one another. It just sounds great. Now, question now is how are we going to fix the problem? How can we do that? Well, the first thing we can do is by remembering who this, is, this command is to. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Well, who are God's chosen ones? If I'm reading, I know for certain, I, it's talking to me. This is a command to me. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't confront our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when we sin. But when I read this, I should be really careful of going, oh man, compassion. I know this person who is harsh. I need to go and talk to them about this. You do love your brother enough Love your sister enough to gently bring this up. But first, ask yourself, man, do I need to change? Imagine if just one person in your church started to really, really try to live this way. What if that person was you? How would that change your church? I think we often look at everyone else and say, man, these people are all rude. They're all unkind. They're all snarky. They're all persnickety. All these problems. How are we going to fix those people? But we really should say, how am I going to fix me, how am I gonna how am I gonna live the new life? Because what if I did? What if you did? What would that change in your relationships, in your church, in your home, and your camp? And again, I'm not saying this has been a great week. I'm not I don't have like two people in mind here or five people or even one person. Maybe one no, I'm just kidding. So how how would that change? How would that change things? Now, he doesn't leave it here. All of these virtues are good, all of them are relational, all of them talk about how we interact. But he now lands on the really important one, the primary one, the one that I think is feeding and driving all of these other virtues. 
He says in verse 14, and above all of these, so if you're going to be compassionate, above how much you try to be compassionate, be this. If you're trying to be forgiving, above how much forgiving you are trying to be, put on this. He says, put on love. What does love do? It binds everything in perfect harmony. You need to cultivate the God, you need to cultivate the virtues in your life. But you need to grow in love in your life. Part of my problem in having compassion before was that I was self-focused, but the root of that is that I don't love people as much as I should or in the way that I should. I'm more concerned about me than I am about them. And love is always other person focused. When Christ loved us, what did he do out of love? He served us by dying. I can look at you and I can say, I love you, and I can have happy feelings, and that's great. I'm, that's great, wonderful. And I can have a warmth in my, my chest for you. I think of you and think happy thoughts. But if I'm not serving you, there's no way you know that I love you. If all I do is think a happy thought and then I go back to living for me, I have a happy thought, but I don't necessarily have love for you because love thinks about the other person first. Love does what the other person needs first. Love is not just interested in their own interests, but they're interested in the interests of other people. And that's the driving motivator here. Now, the best part is that you don't need to have a really long lecture on what love is. All you need to do is to step back and think about where you were and where God has brought you and what Christ did for you because that is the perfect picture of love. Embody that. In fact, I would say when he says above all these put on love, I think if you put love on, the rest of these happen. I mean, can I love someone and be harsh to them? Well, probably. I'm imperfect human. But if I'm really seeking to love my fellow brother or sister in Christ, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be meek. I'm going to care about them. I'm going to forgive them when they sin against me because I know how much God's forgiven me. We need to cultivate these virtues, and I think the primary way we do that is by cultivating love for our fellow brothers and sisters. That is the way I think you grow these. Now, I knew this was coming. Oops, that's not what I knew. There we go. The third one is that we need to grow in Christ-mindedness if we want to cultivate these virtues. We need to grow in Christ-mindedness. This, I, I feel like we could really, we really could spend the rest, we could spend a whole day on this next section, but I would like to move forward. Paul now, at the end of this teaching time where he says, you know, your mind is different, you've been, re -renew you've been renewed, You've put off this old man, so then put to death these practices. You put on this new life, so start putting on these practices. He now gives some, uh, like, bullet commands. He's like, boom, 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 about how to live as a result of all these things. So we're going to go quickly through this, and I want to make one observational point. He says, verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, what is the peace that Christ offers? It's peace between me and God. And that peace between me and God, with my account of my sins being wiped out, allows me to have peace with my fellow brothers and sisters. Let that rule in your hearts. Now, when he says heart here, I think he's saying the same thing as mind. When he says set your mind on things above, I think you almost could say set your hearts on things above. 
When he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts here, I think you could also say, let the peace of Christ rule in your minds. Because for Paul, mind, heart, it's all of what's inside you. It's the immaterial part of you. It's the part of you that's who you are if you lose your body. And he's saying, in that part of you, let the peace that Christ offers you rule. Rest in the fact that you're forgiven. Rest in the fact that God loves you. Rest in the fact that God knows what's going on in your life and will take care of you because he's never failed you yet. Let that rule how you think and live and move and have your being. And then he tags on this little comment. And be thankful. And be thankful. And this is what I want to hit. Now, pause. Remember the thankful thing. Now he goes on and he gives you another uh, exhortation. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Not just a little, not just part-time, but richly. What does it mean to dwell? We would say live. It's your address. It's where you always occupy your space. So let the, the word of God dwell in you. How, do you. how do you let this dwell in you if you're not in it regularly? How do you let this dwell in you if you're not learning to love it, if you're not hungering for it, if you're not really getting into God's word? Sometimes you get into God's word and you're just doing it. That's still better than not getting into God's word. You need to let this dwell in you. It needs to be like your roommate inside of you. Your word, the word of God needs to be part of your interior self. You need to let it dwell in you. And not just a little, not just like part-time rents the room on the weekends. It lives in you richly to the point that it begins to come out of you. So he says, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he gives you these ways that'll happen. Teaching and admonishing one another. So the word of Christ comes out when you teach one another, when you admonish one another in all wisdom from the word of Christ. And then even in your singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, your songs should be latent with biblical language and ideas, thoughts, values, hopes. And then with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the second time he said thankful in two exhortations. Let the peace of Christ dwell in you and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you and be thankful. And then he says, whatever you do, in word, like what you say, or in deed, in your actions, do everything to the glory of God with gratefulness or giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times he says, thankfulness, thankfulness, thankfulness. And I take that as something that defines a Christian. It's like the shirt that you wear that everyone sees is your thankfulness. I mean, honestly, you work, I worked in a secular workplace and apart from believers, there's not a lot of gratefulness out there. You probably know this from knowing people, but you know Christians too who everything stinks. Everything's bad. Nothing goes well. And then you have Christians who are in a worse situation and they are thankful to God all the time. Thankfulness should characterize us. How does that happen? Again, I would say it's dwelling on Scripture. It's meditating on the love that God showed us on the cross. It's loving God that brings out the thankfulness. Are you a thankful person? Let's dream for a moment. Remember the puzzle box illustration. So you have this puzzle box. And earlier I said, what would it be like 
if these virtues were perfectly implemented by all of us. Think for a moment, what would that be like in our churches? What would that be like for us in our workplaces? What would that be like for us in our families? How would things change to look more like this new life? What would a church look like? So here's your question today. What would a church look like if uh, that embodied all of these virtues? So I want you today, as you go from here, I want you to think about a church, maybe your church, but not if it's going to make you bitter. Think of an abstract church, some other church out there. Okay? And I want you to think about this and be like, I'm so mad that no one in my church acts this way. If that happens, you're missing the point. This is for you, not for them. In fact, this is one of those things where I don't even think you need to police other people. You just need to learn to do it for a while yourself. But what would a church be like if people perfectly embodied this? Just dream for a while. What would that be like? Meditate on that. Because when you do that, I think what you're doing is you're taking the Bible and you're letting it become the picture on the puzzle box of your life. That's your dream. Meditate on it and then begin to desire it as much as you can. We always live out of our desires. We are always doing what we want to do. That's part of the things we have to learn is how to manage desires. But let the Bible's pictures, the Bible's values, let them drive you. Number two, remind yourself that this command, I really think this is important, that this command to put on is given to you. And the next part I need to explain, it's not given to your neighbor who's sitting next to you. It is not even given to your kids who probably need it. And it's not given to your spouse who definitely needs it. <laughs> that was a joke. I'm just saying probably you're thinking they really need it, you know. It's given to you. Sometimes we're very quick to look at these, these virtues and say, man, that person needs that in their life, but that is not the point of this passage. It's how do I need to embody these in my own life? So meditate on these two things today. Let the Bible become the picture on the puzzle box of your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness that you offer us through your Son, Lord, we are thankful that you give us your word, Lord. We're thankful that your word can become the directive in our life. It can become the vision of our life. It can become the mission of our life. It can become the very image that we try to live after. Father, I pray that this week would do that, Lord. I pray that these virtues and vices, this new life, this old life, the, the woman at the well, all of these things we've been talking about from your scriptures, Lord, would become part of the picture on our puzzle box, part of the dream that we're living for so we can say we're living the dream, part of the desire of our heart, our goal list, at the very top of our goal list, Father. I pray that the word would re rearrange our mental furniture so that our values are different and so that we love you. Father, I pray, Lord, above all today, you would just remind us of your love for us, the sacrifice you made, and how that is the thing that shapes everything in our life. Father, we love you. Pray for a good rest of the day. Pray that we have a lot of fun with our families and our friends. In your son's name we pray. Amen.